I'm joined this evening by Ben Worthy, um, Senior Lecturer in Politics and Director of the Centre for British Political Life at uh, Birkbeck. Uh, he's also Director of the MSC Government Policy and Politics and works on transparency, freedom of information, political leadership and so on, um, and is co-author uh, and editor with um, Dermot Hodson of Westminster Watch podcast, which I encourage you to sign up to if you haven't already. Um, the other person we'll be hearing from is, is Laura Richards-Gray, a uh, lecturer in British politics. She joined Birkbeck in 2020 after completing a PhD at Queen Mary, University of London. She has worked in a number of different roles, though, across the public and private sector, including the Electoral and Audit Commissions and for Ipsos Mori. So she's got a very wide ranging interest in British politics. And in particular, her focus of research at the moment is gender, political representation and participation, along with inequality growing uh, concern. OK, um, we will be recording the session. So please be aware of that. Um, also, please put your questions into the chat and turn off your microphones. And I will try to call upon you or to read out questions as we go along. We have until 7 p.m. and uh, we're going to begin with a, a kind of question, a, a kind of round table of, of questions and then open to the floor once uh, our presenters have, have got some of, of what they've got to say off their chests. So um, in order to proceed with that then, I'm going to turn to Ben first and I'm going to ask him um, to reflect upon some of the challenges facing Elizabeth Truss as she takes on the role of being a takeover prime minister. Ben, can you outline for us what you think the challenges might be? Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Sam. Yeah, so a few years ago, in fact, in 2016, I wrote a paper because I became interested in the phenomenon of uh, takeover prime ministers. This is the idea that essentially there's two ways to become prime minister in this country. You either win election to get to Downing Street or you uh, become the leader of the governing party when your predecessor steps down, resigns or is forced out. There's a bit of a grey area around um, all of those terms there. So what I did back long ago in 2016 was take a look at all the different prime ministers who'd taken over and I was quite surprised with what I found actually because I found looking from 1916 when the takeover was Lloyd George until 2016 more prime ministers had got into power by taking over than they had by winning a general election. And here's a bit more kind of data to shock you. The last prime minister to leave office because they lost an election was Gordon Brown in what seems very long ago in 2010. And the last prime minister to get into office by an election and then be booted out by an election was Edward Heath back in 1970 and then 1974. So what I want to do is just look over some of the challenges of takeover prime ministers and offer um, some kind of thoughts about Liz Truss in the context of that. And actually, it's, it's pretty bad news for Liz Truss as a takeover prime minister. I calculated how long the average prime minister had in office, 1916 to 2016. They get about five years. But if you get there by general election, I calculated, you get around 6.6 .6 years. But if you take over from someone, you only get 3.6 years. And even worse news, if I reel off some of the names of takeover prime ministers, 
a lot of them are kind of synonymous with doing very badly or failing. So we're talking here about your Neville Chamberlains, who failed around appeasement, Anthony Eden, who resigned after two years because essentially he lied to the House of Commons and lied to the country. Um, then you've got uh, people like John Major. And then, of course, I think we can pretty much agree two failed prime ministers in Theresa May and Boris Johnson. So the kind of question, maybe just to open up the discussion, is why do takeovers have such a rocky time? And essentially, they, they kind of face what I'm going to say is two problems and a dilemma. Uh, problem number one is that you in inherit crisis if you take over. Obviously, prime ministers don't give up for no reason. Um, and almost every takeover has inherited a pretty big crisis. Uh, Lloyd George and Winston Churchill inherited world wars. Um, John Major and Gordon Brown inherited economic crises. And uh, Theresa May and Boris Johnson, and now arguably Liz Truss, all have inherited kind of Brexit. Um, the other problem is that lots of the prime ministers who took over are also associated with not dealing with the crisis that they faced. John Major, Gordon Brown, not dealing with the kind of economic crises they faced, or at least not benefiting from dealing with them. Um, Theresa May failing around Brexit. I would argue very strongly that um, Boris Johnson failed, perhaps the largest test any prime minister has had since the Second World War, which is dealing with COVID. Um, and then finally, of course, we get to Liz Truss. Now, Liz Truss faces, we've got to use the plural here, it's not one crisis, it's crises. So number one crisis is the energy crisis. And we've seen the announcement today of um, this huge amount of money essentially being uh, pumped out to help um, with uh, energy bills. This is connected in turn to a second huge crisis, which is being talked about rather less, which is around uh, climate change. This summer we've seen undeniable evidence of intense and increasing climate change. And yet we have worryingly uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg um, as a junior minister and Liz Truss's own association with the fossil fuels um, lobby. And on top of that, of course, we get Brexit. Brexit hasn't really been done, let's be honest about it. It's been partially done. But you'll notice that when Liz Truss spoke yesterday with Joe Biden, the first thing they mentioned was the Good Friday slash Belfast agreement. So again, there's lots of challenges facing them. So that's problem number one. Problem number two for Prime Minister, which is kind of connected, is that they often face very divided and fractured parties. They inherit very unhappy parties. Now, most modern prime ministers do have unhappy parties. They're getting more rebellious, more volatile and less happy. Um, but takeovers face kind of particular problems uniting their parties um, and keeping them happy. Think about John Major's party divided over Europe, Theresa May, the same party deeply divided over the form that Brexit would take. And then Boris Johnson's party deeply divided between the supposed red wall and the more traditional conservatives about what they want the government to do. Um, and what this means is that, you know, for prime ministers who have much of a majority in parliament, like Theresa May or John Major, but even for Boris Johnson, who did have a big majority, it becomes very difficult to hold the party together and get things done. And I think Liz Truss will face this in a very serious way. Um, Liz Truss didn't win a great deal of support in party in the leadership campaign. Essentially, she's the choice of the grassroots of the party rather than the MPs in Parliament. And you'll notice that with the removal of lots of people from the cabinet, she had a lot of unhappy potential challenges now sat on the back benches of um, the party. And these can cause trouble. She's the only prime minister I can remember for a long time who has two prime ministers 
on the back benches of the party. Boris Johnson, who's very likely to stay quiet and loyal, and beyond that, Theresa May as well. So um, she's in for a difficult time. So the final point is not only do they face these two problems, they then face a dilemma. Do we call an election or not? So of the takeovers, I calculated seven of them had gone on to win an election that they called, five of them had lost and two of them never fought it. So odds are that, that she should win. Um, the bigger question is, does winning really make for happy premierships? Boris Johnson won big in 2019. John Major won in 1992. And, you know, to quote Tony Blair, a fat lot of good it did them. And um, they both had very tumultuous and kind of dysfunctional uh, times in office. I think the last prime minister to win the election and then achieve things was actually Harold Macmillan back in the kind of late 1950s. So um, Liz Truss has announced that she won't call an election. She kind of dropped a hint that there wouldn't be a general election until 2024. I don't believe it. I think there'll be one much sooner. She'll either do it to capitalise on a bounce of popularity or the success of some of her policies, or she'll do it because it's better to go earlier before Labour's lead gets even larger and larger. There's a few worrying polls out. One particular poll showed that Liz Truss as Prime Minister lopped off five points on the Conservatives' um, support. And it's that sort of thing that could cause a great deal of unhappiness and worry. So just offer a few thoughts uh, for the discussions. What sort of things would we look for? Uh, the first thing we should look for is how people respond to the energy proposals put out today. It's a huge amount of money, not a great deal of transparency or clarity about what it does. I've put a snap poll in the chat there, uh, which seems to show that about 54% of people asked today don't think it does enough. If that narrative takes hold, there's going to be some pretty serious problems. The second thing to keep a lookout for is public opinion and backbench opinion, particularly thinking about what the public think. If there's an improvement in the Conservative Party and Liz Truss's in particular standing, then that could mean a general election. It could mean success as a takeover. But if it continues to tank, and remember, essentially, Boris Johnson was removed because he was deeply, deeply unpopular. Not for anything he did, but the fact that he was doing bad things and was extremely unpopular. That was why he was removed. Um, so keep an eye on the polls, but also keep an eye on what backbenchers are saying. At the minute, lots of cheering and happiness around this trust. Let's see where it looks in a month's time. You've got some people there who could be potential rivals in the leadership campaign. You've got people who know a lot about what happened in the government, know a lot about Liz Truss's involvement. And this leads to the third point. I noticed this in the first PMQs yesterday. Labour were very keen to tie Liz Truss back to Boris Johnson. And the extent to which Liz Truss is able to make herself appear as different from Boris Johnson or a kind of new government, or the extent to which Labour and others are able to tie her back to lots of the corruption and controversy of Boris Johnson may well be the kind of making or breaking of the premiership. And that's it from me. Okay, thank you, Ben. Very interesting food for thought. Um, picking up on your observation that you think we should look back in a month, if a week is a long time in politics, in a month we could be in completely different territory. I want to turn to Laura and to ask her to outline what she thinks are Liz Truss's priorities on yeah, thanks. Hopefully you can hear me and see me and the technology is working fine. Welcome, everybody. Um, yeah, I just wanted to um, say something about Liz Truss's likely priorities. 
And obviously she's made that quite easy for us because in her first uh, speech as Prime Minister, she defined them herself, didn't she? So she said she wants to do something on energy, obviously, and we've had that announcement today. She wants to do something on tax cuts, something she spoke about a lot in her campaign, and also um, on the NHS. So um, obviously she's outlined those plans on energy today, hugely kind of anticipated and vitally important. I think it was obvious she was going to have to say something quite quickly on that um, in the face of the current cost of um, living crisis that's that's being so um, badly uh, exacerbated by the cost of energy. So basically what she said, I'm sure you've um, been following the news, but she's uh, basically going to head off that planned rise in uh, energy costs in the rise in the cap uh, that was due in October. So she's freezing energy bills for um, uh, uh, households at kind of average of, of two and a half thousand for some two years or so. She's obviously something she's promised to do for a while is remove those green levies as well to keep um, bills down. So um, she said, didn't she, during the campaign, she really doesn't like uh, handouts and some of this looks exactly like a handout. But I think there's a good argument for saying this isn't um, a handout. This ultimately will be paid for, well, it'll be paid for out of government borrowing, um, which ultimately will be paid for uh, by the taxpayer or by consumers. So it's basically what she's saying is, I'll put it on the tab for you. Um, and this is, um, as, as we're getting a feeling for, is potentially quite controversial move. So um, Labour and the Lib Dems have been saying for some time they want that gap between the cap and the true cost of energy um, to be plugged by a windfall tax. They've talked a lot about that. Um, you will know this is basically a, a tax on the um, huge uh, profits being made unexpectedly by those uh, energy companies. But she's resisted that and she was very clear on that yesterday in PMQs. And that's the way she's gone. She has resisted that. Um, but interestingly, there's talk of the fact that actually the windfall tax would have been uh, a more popular option. It was a preference really among conservative voters. So she hasn't really done the kind of politically popular thing in that sense. Um, but certainly people will be pleased to, to see that cap in place. And maybe at least for now there, they won't be too concerned with, with kind of how it's paid for. Uh, but that's obviously her first and huge, you know, hugely um, important priority uh, facing her in the first few uh, months and years, really. On tax, she's she's pledged, as, as we've heard during the campaign, to remove that levy, that NI levy, uh, and the NHS and social care. So people will get to keep that 1.25% was introduced um, by the last administration. They'll get to keep that. Again, this is a potentially uh, controversial move. We've got a flavour for that if you watch the TV at the weekend in the interview she gave. This will disproportionately help the richest, obviously, only pay NI if you're over a certain threshold. So those under that threshold won't uh, won't benefit. Those who are just over that threshold but on low incomes will only really be helped a little bit. And obviously those uh, um, who pay the most will be, or who earn the most, should I say, will be disproportionately advantaged by that. She's also said she'll scrap um, the rise, the intended rise in corporation tax. Um, again, this is in the name of boosting growth. She's very keen on that. Um, and there were rumours actually during the campaign of some kind of cut to the AT. So that's clearly on her agenda and clearly a, a big priority for her. But of course, that leaves the big question of how she's going to square um, her commitment to lower taxes with uh, the promises she's she wants to deliver on um, in relation to the NHS. So, for example, she mentioned in her 
uh, speech, cutting those waiting times, dealing with the NHS backlog, just boosting investment really in the NHS and putting it on, I think she said, a, a firmer footing. Um, so we'll have to see how she's going to square those two commitments really in detail. Um, isn't forthcoming yet on that. Another big priority, which I just wanted to mention that she hasn't been so explicit on, um, but will certainly be a priority for her, is gaining the trust of um, both her colleagues in Parliament. Remember, as, as Ben just said, she wasn't uh, the Conservative MP's first choice, so she'll have to build that support within the party, uh, especially, as Ben alluded to, the fact that she hasn't given um, prominent positions in her cabinet to Rishi supporters, they're going to be on the back benches and potentially causing trouble. So she'll definitely have to make that her priority, but also building trust um, with the public. And that is going to be a tough job. It's going to be a tough job to turn things around and really convince voters um, ahead of the next election that they they should put their trust in, in, in the Tories again. Labour um, have a clear lead in the polls at the moment. Um, I think YouGov, the latest YouGov poll, puts them on uh, 15% percentage points ahead Labour so that's quite a, a lead and they've had that lead for a while now also we need to remember that if she does stick to 2024 for an election we will have had 14 years of uh, the Tories in power by that stage that will be the second longest period um, of rule for one party since the war so the longest obviously being the Conservatives between uh, 97 and uh, sorry 79 and 97 so um, I think it's fair to say we're kind of getting to the business end of things and, and she'll be very much aware of that. Also, it's clear from uh, this is the last point I wanted to make clear from PMQs yesterday that there is um, going to be a far more discernible difference between Labour and the Conservatives with Liz Truss in post, um, mainly because it's much clearer what Liz Truss stands for compared to Boris Johnson. Um, Boris was hard to pin down. Um, he was what you might call a kind of extreme political shapeshifter. So it was hard for Labour in that context to articulate how their policies differed. That is going to be a lot easier now, I think, uh, with Liz Truss um, as PM. And it's going to help them, I'm sure, to, to articulate a kind of really alternative and clearly alternative vision for the country ahead of, of the next election. So that will definitely be a priority for Liz Truss and something she's going to have to look out for. Okay, thank you, Laura. Um, ben, do you want to chip in with other priorities that you think the government will have or should have? Well, the... I, yeah, I was maybe going to pick up on some of the should haves. I mean, uh, yeah, as as Laura said, one of the problems for Liz Truss is her big choice is she's made a great deal of promises to a very narrow, narrow selectorate, which is the MPs in the Conservative Party and then the grassroots of the Conservative Party, which is estimated about 180,000 people. Now, some of those policies and suggestions are extraordinarily unpopular with the general population. So at some point she must choose who she's going to disappoint, um, the selectorate or the, or the electorate. I want to pick up on climate change. As I said, there's a great deal of concern about this. She made some rather worrying noises about climate change, about the green levy, as Laura said, um, the announcement, of course, that the ban, fracking ban was going to be uh, ended uh, has been very worrying, not just for the populace, but also for a number of red wall MPs who worry about the impact it'll have on their constituencies. Um, a very bad signal about Jacob Rees-Mogg, very bad news 
um, about the finding about fossil fuel companies giving money to her leadership campaign. On the other side, and here it seems like uh, Prime Minister Truss is going to kind of try and ride two horses at once, which is the climate scepticism versus the we acknowledge net zero, is there is a review into net zero, but it's being led by a very green uh, conservative. So we'll have to see how those two things pan out. I'm pretty sure she's going to disappoint somebody on climate change, and I do hope it's the uh, climate change sceptics. Um, on the devolved issue, and I think this is a really, really important issue, just like Boris Johnson, she came into power announcing that she would also be a minister for the union. Um, and it, it, it worries me when a prime minister has to say how much they are for something. Um, it's kind of like when people have to tell you they have a good sense of humour. If you have a good sense of humour, you shouldn't need to tell people. So it's a sign of weakness rather than sort of um, strength. Um, of course, we've, we've talked about Northern Ireland. There is still the hugely controversial uh, Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which is heading for the Lords, where there's going to be quite a battle. Um, of course, the House of Lords can't stop anything happening. They may be able to kick up um, quite a fuss. I think the real interested party in that Northern Ireland Protocol Bill will actually be the White House um, and what they say. Um, I think there's a tendency, there'll be a tendency like Boris Johnson to talk up um, a kind of fight with the European Union about Northern Ireland, but in the kind of Duke of York style, you'll march your troops to the top and then they'll march them, march them down again um, if the White House kind of expresses its displeasure. Don't forget Scotland. Um, Nicola Sturgeon is determined for there to be at least a kind of constitutional issue uh, with a Supreme Court ruling about a possible referendum in October. And as well as the kind of questions around the breakup of the UK or the staying together of the UK, there's also the issue about how much they're diverging. Um, you might not have noticed this morning that the, um, the Welsh First Minister announced that all primary school children in Wales would get universal free school meals. And this policy pressure might start to apply on um, Liz Truss when there are popular kind of policies being pushed in different parts of the UK. Um, that she's not necessarily doing. And I think actually just going back to the question around um, the energy bills, I think at the minute people are looking into the details and thinking about it, Liz Truss keeps talking about delivery, but I think the big questions will come after the delivery, which is delivering what, for who and how, and then the discussion will be about and who pays. And I think that's where some of the problems could arise. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you, Ben. And it leads us into, I think, a more finely grained discussion, maybe, of some of the ways in which you each perceive she might um, differ in policy terms from the previous uh, incumbent and indeed other prime ministers. Laura, would you like to open that up a bit? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, if I focus on um, how she's likely to differ from from Boris, perhaps maybe on personality, and then I'll I'll also say something about policy, as you say, Sam. Um, so yeah, starting with personality, I think there's quite a difference, isn't there? Um, she made quite a big deal of the fact during the campaign that she she isn't a slick presenter. Uh, she kind of admitted that. Perhaps that's because she knows it's true, or maybe. Um, she knows it will put a bit of kind of clear water between her and Boris, who was often obviously seen um, to be more about style than, than substance. Um, but I think that will be a factor. So kind of putting aside um, Boris's 
uh, gaffes, maybe putting aside the, the that disastrous um, Peppa Pig speech, which if you haven't seen it, um, I would recommend you dig out on YouTube. So putting aside those kind of really awkward moments, um, Boris definitely was seen as having popular appeal, um, or at least an ability to, to kind of engage with people, to connect with people. And whether you kind of liked his politics or not, people found him amusing, um, people found him engaging. So I think it's fair to say Truss won't compete in that sense. Um, her kind of talking about awkward moments, her awkward cheese and pork speeches um, probably tell us that she's not that slick communicator. And again, if, if you haven't seen them, I'd, uh, I'd recommend you Google those. And as I said, she's kind of embraced that awkwardness on the campaign. That's been interesting to see. So she wants instead to be seen as somebody, and she said it again and again, who gets things done and does what she says as well. So she made a big thing, didn't she, during the campaign of, of being against um, the government's U-turn on um, on the raise, the rise in uh, national insurance. She said she didn't think that was the right thing because they promised not to do it in the manifesto. So she wants to be seen as somebody who will do what they say they're going to do. And as Ben just said a minute ago, who will deliver. So deliver, deliver, deliver has been her, her kind of slogan through the campaign. And she'll certainly want, I think, um, now moving into the position of PM to be judged um, as a prime minister on uh, the basis of what she does rather than her personality. So Boris Johnson has often been said as kind of obsessed with what people um, thought of him, obsessed with being liked. And um, I don't think that's the case with Truss. I think she'll be, as I say, more concerned with with kind of getting the job done, which I think for many will be a really refreshing change. Um, having said all that, interestingly, she she is quite a fan of social media, um, and I'm not on social media, so I don't know, but I think she's um, she's quite active on Twitter. So she obviously knows, as as Boris did, that she um, needs to take that side of things seriously. That the you know that, that there is a power in public perception. Um, the importance of personality, if you like. In terms of what she'll be like to work with as well, there's been um, people coming out, MPs, other people who have worked with her saying that she, she's um, awkward, talk, talking of her kind of being awkward or uh, being even a bit mad. But we do know that women are held to a different standard than men in public office. And she's certainly not the first and she won't be the last, I'm sure, female politician to be to be accused of being of being mad or, or have similar um, accusations made about her. She's at uh, the points of similarity and difference. She's politically flexible. Um, we know that she started as a Lib Dem in. Oh, can you hear my top minute? Um, she started as a Lib Dem in um, in university and then moved into Conservative politics when she left university. She started off as a as a Remainer, changed her mind after the referendum. So we can see that she's got that kind of flexibility. And and in many ways, I'm sure we can kind of put her. Uh, longevity as a as a cabinet minister down down to that to a certain extent, and that is another point of of kind of comparison, I guess, with Boris Johnson, who, as we've already noted, is um, is known for his kind of political flexibility, if you like. Having said that, um, ideologically, kind of moving on to where she stands, I think it's definitely easier to see where um, Trust stands and what she stands for, ideologically speaking. Um, and I don't think um, the same could be said of Boris Johnson. He talked about himself not having any convictions except for, he joked, uh, a speeding conviction. Um, now we can add that that fixed penalty notice um, from Partygate to, to that. But the point is that he was characterised 
and many in his party characterized him as a kind of conservative light prime minister um you know we saw public spending soar obviously largely due to covid but also due to his desire to to level up and to to fund um the nhs and, and fund social care she's definitely going to be a more um traditional uh more free market low tax small small state kind of traditional tory in that sense uh so i think there will be um, rather large differences between the previous administration and this one. And I think that's actually quite interesting in light of the fact that she made such a, a play in her first speech of, of, of paying tribute to Boris Johnson. It's the first thing she did when she stood up at that podium uh, on Tuesday in front of, of the door of number 10. She wanted to pay tribute to him. Um, I think that was interesting, given that I think there will be these differences. And that was probably a nod, I think, to those in the party who didn't really want to see him go, uh, including the kind of pro-Brexit voters that, that the Conservatives won over in, in 2019. So I think it was more a nod to that and a kind of a, you know, um, something designed to, to kind of please them um, rather than an indication that she's going to follow in Boris Johnson's policy footsteps, if you like. OK, thanks, Laura. Um, ben? Can you tell us who, um, whom amongst our previous prime ministers you think she is going to be most like? Who is okay? You know, <laughs> who who might you line her up against? So I'll say who she'd like to be like, and then maybe I'll I'll offer a, a less flattering portrait of what who I think she'd be like. So I mean, so in terms of in terms of now, I think now is actually the time for her to be most like Boris Johnson to U-turn, to retreat from various positions while she's still popular and not subject to scrutiny or as much scrutiny and try and get away with things. I think the PM she most wants to resemble, and this has been kind of blatantly obvious, is Margaret Thatcher. Um, she wore the same outfit, it's been talked about, you know, a lot of the style. I mean, all prime ministers since Margaret Thatcher have tried to be like Margaret Thatcher uh, in some ways. Um, but. Liz Trust in a speech at the LSE talked, talked of herself as a great disruptor. So this image of the kind of radical at the head of a kind of conservative government. Um, but I'd actually say, and now I'm going to kind of choose my word kind of carefully. One of the things about Margaret Thatcher was that she was very adept at doing things and later on pretending they were ideological. So looking properly at kind of Thatcher's time in office, there was an extraordinary number of retreats and moves and changes and shifts. I think actually Liz Truss is very unlike that from what we've seen. And there's a couple of other things about Margaret Thatcher that definitely don't apply to Liz Truss. Firstly, um, Margaret Thatcher was extraordinarily media savvy. She pretended not to care about what the media said, but she was extraordinarily good at saying things and doing things that kind of had a strong reach across um to the public even if it made no sense at all you know you know the, the economy should be like a housewife's purse all these kind of homilies like that secondly margaret thatcher was extraordinarily lucky in her opponents both kind of foreign and domestic she was very very lucky to have such a divided opposition which this trust doesn't have and finally this is a really important point and it also goes back to boris johnson both Margaret Thatcher and Boris Johnson benefited from an extraordinarily sympathetic media, which I don't know if Liz Truss will for very long, especially if the media start running stories about, you know, people suffering uh, in poverty, 
energy crisis, things like this. Who she does resemble much more is Theresa May. And I've got to say, when I saw her at PMQs, there was this constant repetition of the same kind of slogans. And somebody said of Theresa May, she made the right moves, but always at the wrong time. And one of the questions is whether actually Liz Truss may fix herself to ideological positions and not be able to back out of them. She's left kind of several hostages to fortune. Just out of interest, I had a quick look at which other prime ministers um, went from foreign secretary direct to prime ministers. It's not a very appealing list for Liz Truss. Um, Anthony Eden, who had to resign, James Callaghan, who only got three years, and Alec Douglas Hume, for which you should all shout who, and I should say, yeah, I know, only 364 days in power. So actually, the comparisons between foreign secretaries going into uh, Downing Street aren't particularly good. Okay, <laughs> thank you for that bit of gloom. Um, can we maybe reflect upon the campaign process? We've been doing a bit of futurology, but let's think back about the process that has seemed interminable to me of, of the campaign to achieve the prime ministership and what that campaign might have shown to be her strengths and weaknesses. Ben, do you want to um, come in on that? Yeah, I think, I think one of her major strengths so far is that she's not Boris Johnson. And um, it's kind of like, after a flashy, showy prime minister comes the no frills takeover who's gonna say it plainly. The problem is that the only examples I can think of are Gordon Brown after Tony Blair and then Theresa May after David Cameron, none of which actually lasted very long, but there's always this claim that kind of be no frills, plain speaking, somebody who will, inverted commas, deliver something. Um, she is very experienced, as Laura points out, she's been, uh, a, a minister under three different prime ministers. Um, she's held a lot of different offices, some of the great offices of state, some of the smaller ones. Um, so she should have a very good sense of how government works. Um, the weaknesses are, um, she seems to have a tendency to draw very clear red lines, a bit like Theresa May did, like Theresa May famously did and then kind of trapped herself, um, appealing particularly to the kind of right of the party. Um, I wouldn't set her particularly highly as a communicator, and I don't mean that in terms of just set piece speeches, but also in terms of kind of the softer things that Margaret Thatcher, as an example, was very good at, and Tony Blair was very good at, in terms of the interviews with the media, the sit down interviews with the media, um, you know, and the softer side of being a prime minister. Um, and I think one of her uh, uh, kind of weaknesses is her loyalty. To Boris Johnson. Um, I'm very, very unconvinced by Boris Johnson's promise, promises um, to, you know, stay silent and supportive, especially if he's given a newspaper column somewhere. He knows what sells, he knows that his memoirs need to be out soon, they need to sell, and he knows what will be of interest. Um, you know, and loyalty is not his watchword. So we could see very quickly a kind of tumultuous mixture of Boris Johnson expressing his unhappiness and winding up parts of the party. I, I, I don't think very many parts of the Conservative Party really want Boris Johnson back. And I think if you look at the polling, the reason he was thrown out was that he was extraordinarily unpopular with the public, but that won't stop him trying to disrupt things. Um, and 
if at the same time Labour tie her back to Boris Johnson, there could be kind of trouble from both sides, from both Labour saying she's a continuity Boris Johnson candidate and Boris Johnson disrupting her administration at the same time. Okay, sounds like a, a fun job. And um, Laura, your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I think I, I, I'd agree with what Ben said. I haven't really got anything to add to that, but I will, um, if it's okay, kind of just pick up on the process point that you made, Sam, um, and give some reflections on that, because obviously that has raised questions, um, uh, especially as the kind of campaign came to an end. It seemed to go on forever. Um, so questions were raised about the length of that um, that process, you know, from the point of resignation, Boris's resignation to the point where we actually got a new PM, um, especially given that there are these pressing issues that we've been discussing and that they, they were um, there in the in-tray waiting. So Boris was obviously clear at the time. He felt um, when he resigned that he really needed to stay on. It was very important that he stayed on until the election was complete. The process for selecting a new leader was complete. Um, because of all these pressing issues, but you know, by all accounts, he kind of spent two months—the last two months of his uh, premiership on holiday. Um, and there is always the danger that you get between the point of resignation and the new PM coming in—a kind of zombie government—and and everything's kind of put on hold. Um, but obviously, when situations like that arise and there are resignations, um, there's this kind of way up to be done, right between doing what happened and the incumbent staying on, um, similar to Boris, perhaps not doing very little, um, or bringing in a, a caretaker who, who um, then ultimately needs to kind of um, learn the ropes very quickly and perform effectively as a prime minister in, in what is quite a short space of time. So I think um, ideally the reflection has been that, that the length of that process for electing a new leader should, should be much shorter um, to really address these kind of issues. You also get, um, which I wanted to just comment on, these kind of questions about legitimacy. Um, you get the kind of complaints that here we have a new PM uh, coming in who hasn't been an elected, uh, who hasn't been elected by the public, has been, as, as Ben was saying, elected by um, party members. Of course, that is the way our system works. We have a parliamentary democracy. We don't have um, a presidential system. Therefore, the PM is the leader of the biggest party in parliament. We know that. Um, and the leader, certainly we know from what we've seen over the last six years or so and the amount of changes there's been, the leader can and, and, and regularly does does change between elections. So, you know, we know that, but putting that aside, I think you still get these kind of questions um, around legitimacy that, that remain for many people, not least because of who is involved in that decision. So party members get to choose their party leader, discuss that. But in this context, um, I think Ben mentioned the figures uh, a moment ago, it was um, uh, 172,000 Conservative Party members, I think something like that, turn out around 80%. So she gets elected, Trust gets elected by uh, around 81,000. So if you think about that and kind of put it in context, that is 0. I did the figures earlier, 0.17% of the UK electorate choosing the PM. Now, that is the system. We accept that. But it's worth remembering that party members, the people who were involved in that process, also tend to be um, at the extremes ideologically um, and very different from the population as a whole. If you think about that, that makes sense. You have to feel quite strongly um, about the issues, the political issues in order to join a party. So that kind of makes sense. They're going to be at the extremes ideologically. 
but also they tend to look quite different uh, and be quite unrepresentative um, in a democratic uh, um, demographically so the Tory party in particular is known for being much older than the, the UK uh, electorate as a whole so my point really is that whatever Liz Truss and we've kind of alluded to this already but whatever Liz Truss has said to party members to get elected she will very quickly have to balance with um, she'll have to balance those promises and those pledges that she'd made during that campaign to what the public want her to do and, and what the public want to hear and they're likely um, because of all the things I've just mentioned to be uh, very different priorities from what that that party faithful wanted Okay, thank you. Can I ask you then to, to follow that set of thoughts up with some observations on, um, if you like, the gender of Liz Truss and the fact there's been quite a lot in the news about how we've had three now uh, conservative prime ministers who've been women and, and no Labour. So, so to what extent has, has the Conservative Party mainstreamed um, women as prime ministers in a sort of slightly slightly ahead of themselves maybe yeah yeah um it's a really good question there's this constant this question about you know why haven't labor produced uh, a female leader yet so yeah all, all all three of our female prime ministers obviously have been conservative um but ironically actually the labor party um have been actually along with the lib dems we should say have been much more um progressive on on the issue of, of women's representation. So thinking kind of uh, all women shortlist for parliamentary seats, they've been far more progressive on um, the idea of kind of promoting parity in their in their shadow cabinets. So they push much harder on this issue and they've done much better than the Tories. So we're just talking about in terms of percentage of, of women MPs, uh, we see that Labour does much better. So Labour have got, I think, over 50% of their, their MPs are women at the moment, uh, actually Lib Dems obviously talking about smaller numbers, but nearly 70% of their MPs are women, um, whereas the Tories are stuck around uh, around 25%, I think. So that does all of that context, um, and especially with uh, Liz Truss being elected as the third um, female Prime Minister this week, it does raise this question of what what are Labour doing, basically? Why haven't they, um, why haven't they been able to produce a, a female uh, leader yet? I think that's a really difficult um question to answer they're definitely not short of talent um they're not short of women putting themselves forward uh so two out of the four candidates in 2015 were women i cooper and liz kendall um but they did very badly against the two male candidates obviously one of them being jeremy corbyn who came out on top and then if you think fast forward to 2020 two out of the three uh, leadership election finalists if you like uh, on the final um, ballot paper were women, including um, Birkbeck's uh, graduate, Lisa Nandy. So um, yeah, two out of three of them were women, but Starmer still came out on top very comfortably, over 50% of the vote, I think. One of, um, if we're thinking about why then, why haven't Labour um, been able to produce a female leader? Um, as, as I say, it's really hard. Actually, Harriet Harman had a theory that it's precisely because of this kind of progressive approach. It's precisely because of this bigger push for positive action within the Labour Party. And that itself might explain their lack of a female leader. She thinks that perhaps those leading the charge for more equality don't necessarily uh, win friends. 
um, and the men in the party feel challenged. They feel like they're, they're challenging and taking spaces that otherwise would have gone to them, kind of challenging and criticizing, if you like, um, the party hierarchy. Um, she doesn't think that's an excuse, should I say. Harriet Harman doesn't think that's an excuse for, for Labour not having had a female leader, and I agree, but it might be a reason. Um, also, I heard recently Alistair Campbell reflecting on, on this issue and saying it might be something to do with the kind of male-dominated nature of the trade unions that obviously Labour have been uh, kind of closely aligned to over time. But whatever the reason, it clearly is something that, that Labour needs to address and is becoming a kind of increasing embarrassment, I'm sure, to the Labour Party. Um, but actually, just, just while I'm on the, the topic of women, I just um, actually think it's interesting to reflect on what she might do, actually, as, as, as our third female prime minister, what she's likely to do for gender equality, what she's likely to do for women. And um, many of you will know, until her election as PM, she wasn't only foreign secretary, but she was actually minister for women and equalities. So um, she's just um, appointed a replacement uh, for that. Obviously, she's not doing that job anymore. Um, but women has been dropped from the title, so it's no longer uh, Minister for Women and Equalities, it's Minister for um, Equalities only. And that's obviously quite a kind of worrying sign, right? But um, you've dropped this as part of the um, title, will it be dropped as part of the brief? But I think it is in keeping actually with what she's said previously on the issue of, of uh, gender equality. She's known for really disliking a focus on identity politics. Instead, she says she really wants to kind of focus on rewarding effort and ability. Unfortunately, as many of us would recognise, that kind of position is likely to ignore the kind of structural barriers that face many women. For example, kind of carrying the burden of, of unpaid care, um, of, the, of the gender pay gap, etc. And really, we've been talking a lot about the cost of living um, crisis that, just like austerity and COVID before it, will hit women hardest. And given that context um, and the kind of continued, what we see the, to be the continued kind of appalling levels of um, violence against women, it is really disappointing, really kind of worrying that those early signs, and it is only early signs, but those early signs are that this might be kind of a, a gender blind government and and might actually do very little even though we've got a female prime minister to kind of tackle this issue of, of kind of gender inequality head on okay thanks laura ben can i ask you to come in on this and give us your thoughts yeah um i mean i was going to reinforce laura's point there but do remember that the labor party in particular has done an extraordinary amount of work doing lots of the heavy lifting in terms of representation in the house of commons um, over the last few decades, particularly from the kind of 1990s onwards. And, and lots of the, the great statistics that you see in terms of greater female representation is actually down to the to the Labour Party. Um, I think uh, I, I agree with Laura there to, to kind of challenge the essentialism uh, around a female prime minister. Um, and I think looking at Theresa May, who stood on the steps of Downing Street um, and, you know, referred to herself rather like Margaret Thatcher, as being the, the, the daughter of a, a sergeant major, um, but then committed herself to, to, to tackle inequality in all its forms. And those promises just completely disappeared. Um, I mean, this was the prime minister, remember, of the, as home secretary of the, the, the famous Vans around 
um, also around the Windrush scandal, um, and lots of her initial hopes around domestic violence and huge reform to laws around domestic violence just simply kind of disappeared under the pressure of events. Um, and it's probably very likely that whatever kind of hopes there are will, will kind of disappear similarly. It is interesting to note, I am not a proponent of this kind of argument around glass cliffs. The argument that women, women leaders, female leaders can be chosen um, during particular times of crisis, um, often when situations are difficult. It is interesting to note that both female leaders have followed in kind of times of crisis, the last two female leaders, David Cameron's resignation um, and now Boris Johnson's. Um, I think, to be honest, to, to misquote Margaret Thatcher when she said, I, I, I don't want to be thought of as a, a female prime minister, but as a, a, a scientist. Um, I'm much more concerned uh, around uh, Liz Truss and her links to kind of fossil fuel around climate um, than any of these questions. But I do agree with Laura that probably whatever intentions there are may be lost in the other crises that are going to probably very quickly um, number 10 down the street. OK, thank you, Ben. Kind of we seem to start and and uh, and be nearing the end with crisis. Can I ask? Um, those in our audience, if you have any questions for the panel. Yes, Jason. I mean, the thing about trust is that she is unlike, I might go on a bit of a rant here, but she is unlike uh, any other prime minister we've had in, in modern times, um, because of course she's acceded to this office um, without even having the support of a majority of her MPs. She's been um, selected by 80,000 members of the Tory party, which on my poor maths is about 0.1% of the total electorate. Um, and the rant might start here. I mean, how that can be squared with the idea that we have a democratic political system, I just don't know. Now, of course, the, you know, the sort of the Tory constitution is perfect. People who've read their A-level primer on on government and politics will tell you that we don't elect prime ministers, we elect MPs and the, you know, the, the prime minister is the leader of the party that commands the confidence of the majority of MPs in the House of Commons and all that kind of stuff, right? But that's just no excuse for a system um, which is actively promoting. It's not just, you know, that it's failing to protect democracy against corruption, it's actively promoting oligarchy and, and you know, given some of the things Ben was saying, you know, downright kleptocracy. And I think that clearly has to be part of the of the discussion going going forward. Well, Laura, do you want to come in on this? Um, in terms of what Jason was saying, I think um, kind of speaks to what I was saying earlier about these kind of questions around legitimacy. Um, as I was saying, and you know, your maths are correct, Jason, because I, I came out with the same. So yeah, not point just over 0.1 percent or 0.17 percent of the uh, UK electorate. Um, elected Liz Truss um, and that does raise those kind of uh, questions in terms of and, and especially given what I said about uh, the nature of, of party membership is not just about numbers it's about the makeup of them as well um, and they look very different actually Labour Party do much better in terms of membership so you could argue that's slightly more democratic I think there's something like um, 430,000 uh, members, but um, the Conservatives are around 172,000. So uh, yeah, much smaller pool uh, selecting our, our leader, our Prime Minister. Um, 
Uh, yeah, and they look very different from the UK electorate. So whether there will be an earlier election, I think that would be a huge gamble, as you said. Um, we talked earlier about this 15-point lead Labour have got. That's looked quite stable for quite some time now. Um, and I think it would be very risky. And I don't think Liz Truss would want to, to risk calling an election think any earlier than, than she has to. Um, she's talked about 2024 and I I think she'll stick to that then. I think was saying earlier he doesn't think she'll stick to that and it will be earlier. But I think there would have to be something, you know, there would have to be a huge bounce from, from the stuff she's announced, which, as I said, you know, although people will be pleased to see that action being taken on on energy bills, um, there is this big kind of controversial question about who pays and the, the public have paid for quite a few of these things right so especially i'm thinking austerity um uh, you know not a dissimilar situation you know huge profits being made but the public were asked to pay for um the cost of uh, bringing down the deficit now they're being asked to foot the bill of uh, rising energy costs so i think that it offers labor a huge amount of um opportunity for political capital over the next few months and, and years uh, leading into that general election. So, yeah, I don't see it. I don't see that we're going to have uh, an earlier election than than this trust can possibly hold it off. Um, I'm going to pick up on Jason's point about the general election and say there will be an early general election. And uh, it will be a bit like 2019 when lots of different pressures will start to uh, come to bear on the Prime Minister and they will decide on a snap election. Um, sometimes it can be quite personal. John Major wrote in his memoirs of how he felt like he wanted to win his own mandate because he didn't like the feeling that he hadn't won one. But I think there'll be lots of pressure. There'll be pressure from Conservative MPs. Um, they'll want an election if they th see things getting a little bit better or if they think things are only going to get worse. Um, and so they'll start pressuring. The media will pressure because they like an election. Um, and opposition will pressure because they're 14 points ahead, so they'll probably win. I remember in 2019 when lots of different parties were all wanted an election. Simultaneously, the Conservatives, the SNP and the Liberal Democrats all wanted an election and they were all using the old Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which, by the way, doesn't exist anymore, so the Prime can call an election when they will. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, if the SNP, the Conservatives and the Lib Dems all want an election, at least one of them must be misreading the signs. But I think we'll find ourselves quickly in a situation, whatever the promises, and remember, Theresa May very specifically ruled out in a general election, publicly stated she would serve until the end of the term and didn't, that there will probably be uh, an election sometime next year, is what I would um, imagine, simply because the drumbeat will happen. There was already questions from a Labour Party at PMQs, one, um, one MP just stood up and said, why aren't you calling the general election? And we'll hear that more and more and more from so many different parties that I think Liz Truss will, will, will call one. Any further questions from people in our audience? Uh, if there aren't any further questions for Laura and Ben, then I want to thank them very much.